Well, there are uh, the typical handout is going around. It looks like this. If you need one, raise your hand. Ian will find you. And if you didn't get the timeline from a couple of weeks ago, which looks like this, if you want one of those, Denny has them in the back. The timeline might come in handy again today, so we printed some more of those. Because when we're studying chronicles, of course, the very word chronicle kind of denotes a timeline. These are things taking place one after the other. And so as we come today to week three of this survey of Second Chronicles, uh, we're going to be looking at um, the king Rehoboam. Last week, of course, we focused on Solomon, and Solomon's reign was really the high point, the pinnacle in the nation of Israel, um, the golden age, as it were. And we're going to see today, when we look at Solomon's son, Rehoboam, kind of all of that gets reversed. All of the good things that we saw last week, as we emphasized Solomon's wisdom, Solomon's wealth, Solomon's worship, his concern for right and true worship, all of those good things from last week really get reversed today. Um, but before we dig in to Rehoboam, I want us to get a little bit of backstory on some things that Chronicles doesn't really give to us. Um, so turn actually to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. Because I think to get the best feel for what we're going to see today with Rehoboam's reign, it'll help us to see some things that happened um, before this. 1 Kings chapter 11, this is going back to Solomon, and hopefully it'll all make sense why we're doing it this way soon enough. Uh, but let's see, um, 1 Kings chapter 11, I'll read verses 4 through 8. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now, the chronicler basically leaves this part of Solomon's reign out. He doesn't include it because he's writing with a different perspective, really idealizing Solomon. But this is something we're probably familiar with. We know that Solomon had many wives, foreign wives, which was a sin to intermarry with people that were outside of the nation of Israel. And while that was a problem in and of itself, really the problem was, as the text says, these wives turned Solomon's heart away from worshiping God to worshiping idols. Not that it was his wife's fault. Solomon was responsible for it. But they gave occasion for Solomon's sin. So what's the result of this? We'll look at verse 9 through 13. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. 
But the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So what's the result of Solomon's sin? Well, the kingdom, that is God's people, is going to be split in two. The result of Solomon failing to keep his end of the covenant, failing to worship God as he should, now the result is God's people are going to be divided. Um, to be sure, God does reiterate his commitment to David in keeping his end of the covenant. Um, but nevertheless, this is a significant consequence for Solomon's sin. The nation's going to be divided. One more bit of backstory for us, and that today we're going to have a new character enter the narrative, and that's a man by the name of Jeroboam. We need to see what it was that happened with Jeroboam. So after God tells Solomon what's going to happen, the kingdom is going to be divided, the rest of chapter 11 is telling us that God begins raising up these adversaries against Solomon. And look down close to the end of the chapter in verse... 29, 1 Kings 11, and we're being introduced to this man named Jeroboam, who is one of these adversaries that God raises up, and let's see what it was that happens with Jeroboam, verse 29 and following, and it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak. And both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak, which was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give, it, give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me, and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I have chosen, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand, that is Solomon's son, and give it to you, that is, he's talking to Jeroboam, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over wherever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel." So, in all of that, really two things I want us to have in our minds as we look at Second Chronicles. First of all is that Jeroboam has learned something important from Ahijah. This prophet, by doing this kind of symbolic thing, taking his cloak and tearing it up into 12 pieces, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, he gives 
Jeroboam ten of these pieces of cloth, saying, you're going to get ten tribes and be king over them. These other two pieces, those are going to remain in the house and line of David. So Jeroboam learns that he will be made king over Israel after the kingdom is split. But secondly, we understand that some portion of the kingdom will remain in kind of true Israel, that is the southern kingdom's control, in the line of David. So that's our backstory. That'll be helpful for us, I hope. Flip forward, Second Chronicles chapter 10, where we'll begin looking at Rehoboam. Second Chronicles chapter 10. And actually, I'll read the last verse of chapter 9, 2 Chronicles 9, 31, and then I'll go through chapter 10, verse 5. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And it came about when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled in the presence of King Solomon. And Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So they sent and summoned him. When Jeroboam and all Israel came, they spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. And he, that is Rehoboam, said to them, Return to me again in three days. So the people departed. Now really, whether you pick up on it immediately, I think there's some very interesting political intrigue happening here. Because um, recall what happened last week at the beginning of Solomon's reign. He went somewhere when he was made king outside of Jerusalem. He went to a place called Gibeon. Does anyone recall why he went there? He went there to worship. And the reason he went there is because that's where the tabernacle was. So Solomon left Jerusalem, went somewhere at the very beginning of his reign, worshiping in Gibeon. And now Rehoboam does something similar. He goes somewhere else, this time not to Gibeon, but to Shechem. Why does he go to Shechem at the beginning of his reign? Well, it's farther away from Jerusalem than Gibeon was. And in fact, if you were to look in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map that shows the divided kingdom. And you'd probably see that Shechem is a lot farther north, kind of in the middle of where all the northern tribes would have lived. And so I think, really, you can begin to, as we continue to read, this will become more apparent. But I think one might imagine that things were already becoming a bit dicey in the northern tribes. And so Rehoboam travels north to Shechem, perhaps to make nice with these northern tribes try to gain their support. And lo and behold, guess who meets him there? Well, Jeroboam. I find that interesting uh, because uh, as long as you might think it took news to travel in the ancient Near East, it apparently hadn't taken long for Jeroboam to learn that Solomon was dead and that now Rehoboam is taking the throne. And so what does Jeroboam decide to do? He leaves Egypt, and he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He somehow finds out that Shechem's the place to be. That's where Rehoboam is, and that's where Jeroboam shows up. And what is he doing in Shechem? Well, it really looks like in verse 3 that Jeroboam has kind of become the voice of the people. He already seems to have some sense 
of uh, support. It says, when Jeroboam and all Israel came, they spoke to Rehoboam, saying. So I think already, I think we can see that Jeroboam is really acting on what he learned from Ahijah many years before. Ahijah told him, you're going to be king of ten tribes in Israel. And I think Jeroboam realizes now is the time to act. And so I think he's looking for an advantage here. So they ask Rehoboam this question in verse 4. And really, it's not an unreasonable request. I mean, they're saying that your father, that is Solomon, made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service. Now, what is he getting at? What is this hard yoke that Solomon had the people under? Well, I think two things are in view. First of all, I think taxation was an issue. And secondly, forced labor. Now, well, it's true that during Solomon's reign, of course, he was extremely wealthy, and much of that wealth, probably most of that wealth, was coming in from other nations, people sending tribute to Solomon. Tons and tons of gold every year coming in to the nation of Israel. But at the same time, there's a very good chance that the people of Israel themselves were pretty heavily taxed. That is, that they had to give of their own into Solomon's treasuries. Secondly, um, considering forced labor, while there's no reason to think that Solomon ever put his own people in slavery, per se, there were times when different people throughout the kingdom were put into, for a period of time, forced labor, that is, to kind of build up the public works and the infrastructure. Perhaps it's not surprising how Solomon was able to build his kingdom like he was when he had all of the money coming in from outside as well as from within, and he had a labor pool to draw from to make people for periods of time take part in this labor. So it would appear um, that people in the kingdom, particularly those in the north, have had enough of it, and they want some relief. Now, kind of a modern-day parallel, I realize that we live in Texas, and so this is not perhaps um, a perfect analogy for us, but I've heard people myself think about it like this. Um, those that live maybe in downstate Illinois or upstate New York, they complain sometimes that so much of their taxes that they pay seemingly go entirely to Chicago or New York City, right? And it could have been that people in the north were tired of seeing what they're doing, what they're paying, usually ending up in Jerusalem, which is in the south building up Solomon's kingdom. And so they want relief from this. But notice, they do say that if you will lighten this, this yoke, lighten this load, we will serve you. So they make an offer of serving Rehoboam, but I think implied in this is that if Rehoboam doesn't lighten the yoke, then they're not going to serve him. So how does Rehoboam respond? Well, he says, give me three days. And perhaps that's easily enough understood. If someone comes to us with a difficult question we're not quite ready to answer, it's not uncommon for us to say, give me some time to think about this. Perhaps all the while in the back of our mind, not that you've ever done this, but perhaps I have, thinking, well, maybe if I don't bring it up again, they won't bring it up again either, and we can just all move on. I don't know if that's what he was hoping for, but he says, give me three days. And, and really, I mean, what he, he does next um, shows some amount of wisdom because he goes to seek counsel. 
during these three days, he goes to get some advice. That's a wise thing to do. Um, but the question is, what kind of counsel will he get? Let's read verses 6 through 9. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father, Solomon, while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. And he said to them, What kind of counsel do you give that we may answer the people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. So we already see that Rehoboam is headed in the wrong direction. Um, he received good counsel from the elders that had served with Solomon. He said, Treat these people kindly, and they'll serve you. But Rehoboam doesn't like that advice. So he goes to these younger people, younger men, that were some of his cronies, you might use that word. And we maybe shouldn't use the word young, because the way we think of young today, these probably weren't 20-year-olds that he was going to seek advice from. They were probably his peers, those that had grown up with him in the kingdom. Rehoboam was probably about 40 years old when he became king. So these younger men, I think that he goes to seek counsel from a second time, they were probably 40-ish. So they themselves should have had some amount of wisdom. But let's see what they say. Verse 10 and 11. And the young men who grew up with them spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, this is no wise counsel from these young men. Because really, they're saying to Rehoboam that he needs to taunt the people. That is saying that Solomon is nothing compared to me. That I'm the big deal now. That if you thought things were hard under Solomon, well, I'm going to make things even worse. And I don't think that Rehoboam or these young men are really suggesting that he should unleash stinging arthropods upon his people, scorpions. Just an analogy. Solomon didn't really whip his people either, but the point is, you want things to be easier? Well, things are about to get worse for you. And I think you really have to wonder, well, what in the world makes Rehoboam think that this is good advice? What makes him think, as we'll see, that this is good, good advice to be followed? Well, I think we're beginning to see one of those reversals right now. I think we're going to see the reversal of wisdom in the kingdom. All the wisdom that Solomon received from God, I think we're seeing it now beginning to be reversed with the, king, with the kingdom in Rehoboam's hands. So, Let's see what happens next, verses 12 through 15. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. And the king answered them harshly. And King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders 
And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from God that the Lord might establish his word, which he spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So Rehoboam takes the bad advice from the young guys. And he tells the people, things are going to get worse for you. Um, Verse 15 is important for us because more than once today, we're going to see the confluence of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Because I think it's only natural to ask the question, God's kingdom is being split in two. Who's responsible for this? Is it Solomon? Is it Jeroboam? Is it Rehoboam? Is it God? Well, the answer is yes, all of those. But the chronicler makes it very clear in verse 15 that this is not an accident. In case we were tempted to think, or in case the chronicler's audience was tempted to think that God slept in on this day and didn't realize what was happening in the kingdom, verse 15 makes clear that this is a turn of events from God. God is even using the unwise actions of Rehoboam to bring his sovereign purpose about. Verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So all Israel departed to their tents. Now, I don't want to oversell it, but I think that this verse 16 is one of the most disturbing verses that I've read in the Bible. Why do I say that? Now, look at what's happening here. Here we have God's people, those that God had set his covenant love upon, the nation of Israel, a special people for his own possession. It says this is Israel saying this in verse 16. This is God's people effectively declaring that they are not God's people. That's what verse 16 is saying. Because to be without a portion in David, or to have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, that's really saying that we're outside the covenant. That the promises that God had for us are no longer valid. While there are places in scripture where we see sometimes God saying to certain people that you're not mine, you don't belong to me, I never knew you, we see God or Jesus saying that to people sometimes. In this case, it's the other way around. God's people saying that we don't want anything to do with God and his kingdom. They frame their rejection of God in terms of Rejecting God's promises. So every man to your tents, every man for himself. That's what's happening here. There's a bit of good news in verse 17. It says, but as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. So now the ten tribes in the north have gone off to be their own kingdom. In Judah, we have the tribe of Judah and Benjamin be under Rehoboam's control. 
So what happens next? Now that the kingdom is split in two, what is this unwise man Rehoboam going to do? Verse 18 and 19. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was over the forced labor, and the sons of Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So what does Rehoboam do now that the kingdom's divided? He sends the man that's over forced labor, he sends him north, perhaps armed with scorpions, really, I think, wanting to make good on his promise to make things worse for you guys. And of course, those in the north aren't going to have it. And so what do they do to this man? They kill him. They will not be subjected to David's throne, even by force. And I think now, at this point, Rehoboam realizes what's just happened. Kind of the gravity of what's happening perhaps has set in. So he now flees back to Jerusalem. Um, again, something, you kind of read a text like this, and at least I want to step back and say, what just happened? I mean, just literally perhaps months before this, the nation was living unified under Solomon the greatest extents geographically that God's kingdom ever was. They were living in peace and safety. Uh, they were experiencing the wisdom of Solomon. Yes, Solomon made some mistakes. He sinned significantly. Um, but things were really good for Israel. And now, just a few months later, the kingdom's divided. They're living under this unwise man that continues to make unwise decisions and we kind of just wonder, well, what in the world just happened? But we have to remind ourselves of what verse 15 says, right? That this is a turn of events from God. Let's keep going. Chapter 11. Um, I kind of do have to wonder, what is Rehoboam going to do next? Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 11 tell us. It says, now... When Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house. For this thing is from me. So they listened to the words of the Lord and returned from going against Jeroboam. So again, what is Rehoboam doing? Well, he's doing something foolish. He's amassing an army, and to do what with? To go to the north and regain control over those people that just rebelled. He was going to go to war with Israel. And so God intervenes. He sends this prophet, Shemaiah, and he tells Rehoboam, basically, stop. Don't do this. And interestingly, Rehoboam listens. He listens to the voice of the prophet. And so he decided not to invade the northern tribes. And instead of that, we're not going to read the rest of chapter 11, but instead of going on this offensive, Rehoboam instead kind of strengthens his defenses. 
he probably realizes, well, now I have an enemy to the north in Jeroboam, and I have an enemy to the south, that is Egypt. So where had Jeroboam been for all those years? He'd been in Egypt. Now perhaps Rehoboam realizes that I have two enemies on both sides of me with a good chance that they might actually ally with each other. And so the rest of chapter 11 tells us that he fortifies these cities around Jerusalem, strengthens their walls, adds provisions, puts officers and weapons in their place. And then interesting, do look at verse 17 of chapter 11. This kind of seemingly comes out of nowhere. Verse 17 of chapter 11. And they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years. And they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So we do have a period of time under Rehoboam's control where Judah is walking the way they should. They're walking in the way of David and Solomon. I think we should understand that as they were walking faithfully. They were doing the things that they should do. But it's not going to last for very long. Um, let's go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses just verse 1. It took place when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong that he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. So think about the things that have been happening. Um, for a few years, the people under Rehoboam, Judah, they were living, I think we could say faithfully, walking in the way of David and Solomon. Things were going well for about three years. And I think verse 1 tells us that kind of after this, when the kingdom is established, things, things seem to be kind of stabilized, right? Then it says that he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. I think we should probably see a connection there. That it was after some years of stability, probably some years of safety, some years of prosperity even, but after that, then, they forsake the law of the Lord. And I think that we can probably think about ourselves when we see something like that taking place. Because isn't it true that in our own lives, when we experience periods of safety, periods of prosperity, periods of stability, isn't it true that in those times, we're probably most tempted to forsake living faithfully according to what God has asked us to do. Because um, I think we can easily get comfortable in our safety and our prosperity and our stability. And soon enough, we can begin to trust in and rely on our safety and prosperity and stability rather than trusting in the God who makes us prosperous and stable and safe. Perhaps what's happening in Judah is that God has given them some measure of stability and prosperity and safety, but they're mishandling it. They don't receive it well because the result is they forsake, they stop following the law. And as we saw last week, considering what God told Solomon about reminding Solomon that if my people will follow me, then I will bless them don't follow me, then I will chasten them, I will discipline them. 
so it shouldn't surprise us of what comes next for Rehoboam and his people, God's discipline. Look at verses 2 through 4. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they who had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people who came with them from Egypt were, were without number, the Lubim, the Sukim, and the Ethiopians. And he captured the fortified cities of Judah, and he came as far as Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that um, it seems that Shishak had no trouble overrunning the cities that Rehoboam had very recently fortified. Didn't seem to matter, although it tells us that his armies were without number. So he overruns the cities nearby, and he's even knocking on the door of Jerusalem. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time looking at this, and if any of y'all afterwards could correct me, that's great. But I don't think at any time during David's reign or Solomon's reign was Jerusalem threatened by a foreign army. I think that they lived in safety during those two reigns. And now, not long after Rehoboam takes the throne, now you have a foreign power, Egypt, ready to come in and take Jerusalem. And so in this context, God sends the prophet Shemaiah again. As he had sent him before, see what happens in verse 5. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. Now notice, what did we read in verse 1 of chapter 12? We read that Israel forsook the law of the Lord. Now we read in verse 5, that they have forsaken God. He says, you have forsaken me. So is this a contradiction? Which is it? Did they forsake the law or did they forsake God? Well, again, I think we should see that no, it's both. Because to forsake the law is also to forsake God. It's one and the same. The reason they're one and the same is because of the fact, as we've seen in previous weeks, the foundation of the law being the fact that God is the redeemer and the sustainer of his people. And so to forsake his law is to forsake himself. When you think about um, something that, that David said in the Psalm, Psalm 119, when he said, oh, how I love your law, is my meditation all the day. Now, I don't think that David meant that he loved God's law as ink on a page. I mean, yes, he loved the law, but probably for the reason that he loved the fact that it was God who had given him the law. It was God that enacted the law. And he loved the fact that by living according to the law, he was able to walk in holiness and wisdom and in joy. I think there must have been a disconnect somewhere in the people in Rehoboam's day of not understanding the law of God and the person of God. And how did that reversal come about? Well, we've seen the re reversal of wisdom already with Rehoboam. 
And I think now we're seeing the reversal of worship. We saw repeatedly last week how concerned Solomon was with rightly worshiping God. But now we have a king on the throne who thus far, in the text that the chronicler gives us, doesn't seem to be concerned with worship at all. We'll see more of this later on, a specific text that speaks to this, but we don't see anywhere in what we've read so far that tells us that Rehoboam was concerned with the way that he worshiped God. And again, understanding that forsaking the law is also forsaking God himself. If we see the connection there with worship, I think that this also speaks to us. And that if we ourselves are, um, and I'm guilty of this myself, if I'm mostly concerned with trying to keep the law and do the things that God has told me to do, especially outwardly, doing all those things that God wants me to do. But if in my heart, I'm not rightly seeing God for who he is, and I don't have a right attitude and devotion towards him and his person, then really that's a problem of worship, right? My heart is not rightly seeing who God is, but only seeing the things that I think I have to do. And so Judah forsook the law, They forsook the Lord himself. And the result of that, we already read in verse 5. It says, you have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you. Now that also is a chilling verse of scripture. To see God telling his people, Judah, you've forsaken me, and I forsake you. Which I think is to say that if you don't want my law, which is another way of saying you really don't want me, then you're not going to have him. So, verses 6 through 8. What's the result of this? Now, that might be surprising to us, especially verse 6. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some measure of deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. But they will become his slaves, so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So really, verse 6 and 7 might surprise us. Given what we've seen up to now in Rehoboam's life and in Judah's life, maybe we're rightly surprised that this latest prophetic word from God results in them being humbled. We might not expect that, but that's what happens. God in his grace gives this warning, this discipline to his people, and it has the effect, first of all, of being humbled and also worship. They say in verse 6, the Lord is righteous. We could understand that as praise. Of course, as I said, both Humility and worship have been lacking up to this point. Remember, it was Rehoboam that declared that his little finger was bigger than Solomon's waist, right? That's not very humble. And I think now God's warning has humbled him. And as well, I think the recognition that actually what God has done in saying that you have forsaken me and I'm forsaking you, I think he's realizing that God is actually justified to do that. 
God is righteous. It would be right for him to do this. We know that many years before this, Abraham had said, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Perhaps Rehoboam understands, now that he has some humility, that it's right for God to do this. It would have been just for God to do this. Since they had abandoned God, so God is abandoning, abandoning Judah. Um, but he's not, God is not entirely removing the discipline from them. It says in verse 8 that they're still going to become Egypt's slaves, Shishak's slaves. Now, commentators are quick to remind us that this is not slaves in the sense of what they experienced in Moses' day. They're not going to become Egypt's slaves like that again. But rather, the people of Judah are probably going to become kind of vassals. That is, yes, they still have their kingdom of Judah. Rehoboam still on the throne. But they are still subject, or they are now subject to Egypt. They are not entirely free and sovereign as a people. They will be in some sense in subjection to Egypt. And I think it's fascinating the way that God phrases this. Um, they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Now, they may have thought that serving God was difficult. You and I may sometimes think that serving God is difficult. We understand that following Christ in holiness, it is difficult. It is. Anyone that says it's not is not being truthful. We know that walking in holiness requires sacrifice, it requires discipline, it requires self-control, it requires humility, it requires a devotion to God. But living under his rule also means that we are living under the one who is our redeemer and our sustainer. And he will enable us to live under his rule in a way pleasing to him. Not so with Shishak living under the rule of this Egyptian Pharaoh was going to be difficult, but there was going to be no grace whatsoever. It's a very different kind of rule living under Egyptian subjugation. And really, I think what starts here with this episode with Shishak, we're going to see consequences of this throughout the rest of our study in Chronicles. Egypt continues to be a problem throughout the rest of Judah's history until the Babylonian exile. So there's profound consequences here. Um, but still, God does relent. He doesn't allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. And, and really, that's interesting in, in and of itself, is that in some sense, his discipline is being poured out on his people, but not on the city itself. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. The city is not going to be destroyed. The temple is not going to be destroyed. The city is okay. My people are being disciplined, but the city itself is okay. However, verses 9 through 11, all that being said. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's palace. He took everything. He even took the golden shields that Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place. 
and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the door of the king's house. And it happened as often as the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards came and carried them and then brought them back into the guard's room. So what's happening here? Well, we've seen a reversal of wisdom. We've seen a reversal of worship. Now we see a reversal of wealth. All of the treasure, the treasures, the things that were in the temple are now carried away by Shishak. So much wealth that was amassed during Solomon's day is now taken away. Um, specifically, the chronicler hones in on something. He even took the golden shields which Solomon had made. Now, we, we didn't read this earlier, yes, or not yesterday, last week. But Solomon had hundreds of these golden shields made. Some were large, some were small. And the chronicler picks up on this particularly because I think he's wanting to hone in on the shamefulness of this, especially given what Rehoboam does in response. He takes the golden shields, and what does Rehoboam do? He makes shields of bronze in their place. Now, during Solomon's reign, it says that silver was so common it wasn't even valuable. Silver, nothing, there's so much of it. Even gold was extremely common in Solomon's day. And now, things have changed so much that Solomon has to use, or Rehoboam has to make, use bronze to remake these shields. And it's such of a case that it appears that Rehoboam is so concerned about these bronze shields that he has the guards carry them wherever Rehoboam goes. He can't even let the bronze shields out of his sight. Perhaps it's appropriate, perhaps it's not, but think about the Olympics. This just concluded, I think. Have they concluded? Okay. Um, you've heard the saying, perhaps, maybe you haven't, there's glorious gold, there's so-so silver, and there's shameful bronze. Here we are having Rehoboam make these shields out of shameful bronze. Quite the reversal of wealth. How does his reign conclude? In verses 12 through 16. And when he humbled himself, the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy him completely. And also conditions were good in Judah. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old and he began to reign and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nemah, the Ammonitess. And he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now the acts of Rehoboam from first to last, are they not written in the records of Shemaiah the prophet and of Iddo the seer, according to genealogical enrollment? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, and his son Abijah became king in his place. Now again, we're told in verse 12 that Rehoboam has found some more humility again. As a result, I think, of the reversal of wealth, losing all of the things that Shishak carried away, I think produced some more humility in Rehoboam's life. In verse 12. 
verse 14 is particularly important when we think about a summary of Rehoboam's life. Verse 14 says, And he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now, this verse coming where it is in kind of the chronology here, are we to understand this verse as something that was true only at the end of Rehoboam's reign? Was it only at the end of his reign that he did evil and did not set his heart to seek the Lord? Well, I don't think so, because verse 13 and 15 are also kind of summary statements about Rehoboam's reign. They're both kind of giving us a summary account, kind of at the end of everything, at the end of the day, here's a summary of Rehoboam's reign. And bookended between 13 and 15 is this verse 14. I think this is a general statement about Rehoboam. Um, And it's a twofold problem. First of all, he did evil, but the thing I really want us to consider is why did he do evil? It's because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Um, I mean, yes, there had been some moments in Rehoboam's reign where he did choose to do some things occasionally that were not unwise. Um, But ultimately, the evil that he did, it says, was because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And I think this is really the message that the chronicler is trying to send to his original audience. Because those that had come back from the exile, those are the ones reading Chronicles to begin with. They were kind of reestablishing themselves in Israel, asking the question, how are we to live now? How are we to live now? And I think this should be a warning to them. Well, you should set your heart to seek the Lord. And I think that we should immediately ask the same question of ourselves. Many, many thousands of years later, well, how are we to live? Well, we should be setting our heart to seek the Lord. Now, what does that really mean? I mean, maybe that can be nebulous, kind of. You know, what does it mean to seek the Lord? Well, let's just look at a couple of verses elsewhere in the Bible very quickly. Um, Turn to the Psalms real quick. Psalm 63 Psalm 63. If this is the lesson from Rehoboam's life, is that we should set our heart to seek the Lord. Listen to David's words, Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5. O God, you are my God. I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Keep that in your mind and flip forward into the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2, listen to what Paul says. If then you 
been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So if we're to learn a lesson from Rehoboam about seeking the Lord, setting our heart to seek the Lord, well, according to Paul, first of all, it involves our mind, the things we think about, setting our mind on the things above, seeking the things above. It involves our mind, but also, as we saw with David, it involves our heart, our very soul, where he says that I seek you earnestly, my soul thirsts for you. It also involves our mouth, involves praise. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. So perhaps the thing that Rehoboam was not prone to do was to seek the Lord in praise, seek his presence in prayer, set his mind on the things above, meditating on God's word. I think all of those things are things that we can learn from this account of Rehoboam's life that we can apply now in the year 2016 to understand the Chronicler's message for us today. We pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us to seek him this week and even in the next hour as we worship. Lord, I do praise you for your um, word, for what it reveals to us about ourselves and for what it reveals to us about you. God, I pray that I would set my heart to seek you this week. Lord, help all of us to set our hearts to seek you not just we might avoid mistakes, but that because you're worthy to be sought, because your character and your person is glorious and praiseworthy, and it's good and it's grace to us to seek you. Lord, help us to do this this week and in the next hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.